Hey there, folks. This is Dan Figella here with the Tech Emergence Podcast, where we bring you to the intersection of technology and psychology. And as of late, we've had a, a decent amount of focus in the domain of neuroscience. We recent ha- recently had uh, famed TED speaker Jill Bolt-Taylor, who is on the show with us now. And today, I'm lucky enough to have the author of the recent book, Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry, who also happens to be the chairman of psychiatry at Columbia University, Jeffrey A. Lieberman, on the line with me today. Jeffrey, how are you? Fine, thanks. Good to be with you. Yes, indeed. You know, I had seen a decent amount of your work in the domain of mental illness. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time on Tech Emergence, our honed focus is on, uh, you know, where have our leaps been in technology up to today in science and research and technology? And then where might they go in the future? I wanted to ask you first, in the last 10 years or so, and you've clearly been involved in, in psychiatry and in, in neuroscience for a good deal longer than that, um, in the last 10 years or so, what, what have been some of the major leaps in understanding mental illness that we've made uh, in, in, in the research? Well, let me put it this way, Dan. Um, sure. Since you know, your, your focus is on the interface of, of, of technology and uh, scientific developments, um, psychiatry as a specialty of medicine uh, really was a very, very late bloomer. Um, <laughs> and uh, it really did not have any significant scientific foundation uh, until the 1950s, um, and uh, that was because not because you know psychiatrists were slackers or stupid or or or, or uh, you know really not interested. Um, it was because they lacked the technological sophistication and tools or instruments to be able to get traction on the brain, uh, in contrast to. Uh, the search and other organs like the heart, the liver, the yeah. stomach, and so forth. Um, and it's only been uh, really beginning in the 1950s with the advent of psychopharmacology and then subsequently neuroimaging, beginning with the CAT scan, magnetic resonance imaging systems, and then positron emission tomography, PET scans, um, and then molecular genetics. And then most recently, the burgeoning uh, discipline of neuroscience and all of the methods within it, uh, beginning with molecular biology, but then sort of progressing to um, the development by one of my friends and colleagues, uh, Carl Deseroff of Optogenetics. Yeah. And, uh, more recently, Clarity, that this capacity has given researchers the ability to deconstruct the brain, understand its integral components, its mechanisms of action, and how they underpin mental function and behavior. So uh, it's you know just in the same way that uh, Galileo couldn't prove heliocentrism until he had a telescope, and Pasteur couldn't just, you know, develop germ theory until he had a microscope, um, psychiatrists couldn't really understand the brain sufficiently to know how it produced mental disorders until it had the instrumentation. And uh, it began relatively recently, but the momentum that is built as a result of, it's almost like Moore's Law with uh, computer chips, where you see this increasing power occurring uh, with uh, increasing frequency um, or exponential sort of growth. You're seeing this with uh, um, the the, uh, study of the brain and how it relates to understanding human behavior and mental disorders. And and has that made a, a, a tangible uh, improvement and difference on sort of how we treat mental disorders with respect to, you know, even just the technological developments in the last 10 years, 
whether it's imaging or, or otherwise, has that informed not only uh, pharmacological treatment, but also uh, actual kind of sit-on-couch uh, psychological treatment as well? Have we been able to use that instrumentation not only to sort of disassemble the black box of the mind, but also inform what kind of chemicals we're going to chuck in there and, and what sort of words and experiences we're going to take these people through in terms of therapies? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I mean, first of all, um, the, the uh, previously, mental illnesses were not even considered disorders of the brain. They were considered mental, they were considered disorders of the mind, metaphysical things. So, you know, you don't know if somebody was spiritually sick or mentally sick uh, or morally sick. Um, and it wasn't until uh, the development of imaging devices, which allowed um, uh, researchers to examine the brain of living individuals who, who were ill and compare them to uh, you know, healthy controls that differences in brain structure and function associated with illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, autism, uh, uh, depression um, could be demonstrated. And, and then with the advent of magnetic resonance imaging and the various uh, technological applications of MRI um, and then PET scanning um, that the actual functional activity uh, of different circuits, regions of the brain, and in the case of PET, um, the chemistry of the brain could be ferreted out. And based on this, more sophisticated pathophysiological theories of mental illness were developed. And these measures were used to one kind of spawn um, treatment development based on the targets uh, and also to measure the effects of treatment uh, in terms of whether the abnormalities that were identified were improved after treatment was administered. And the amazing thing is that this was applicable not just for medications or somatic therapies, but also for psychotherapies as well. Yeah, yeah. so you know, I would imagine with chemicals that would be uh, a little bit clearer. Hey, we, we, you know, we, we just we just chucked a couple doses of such and such in this guy's milkshake. Uh, let's let's throw him under this machine and see what's happening in his skull. Um, but it seems a little bit more difficult to say. Well, you, you know, he, he just articulated, you know, uh, a, a lot of what was really pent up in inside there when his father didn't take him to the zoo when he was seven. Um, let's throw him under the machine and see what's going on. It seems as though that is tougher to, to maybe put a finger on and to inform, um, uh, to inform the, those, those uh, psychiatry procedures and, and, and treatments for folks. Um, it, it, it must have been a little bit more difficult for that than for just the chemicals and the pharmacological treatments. It is. I mean, but you have to sort of separate out uh, the use of the imaging, uh, what the use of the imaging techniques uh, was for. So, for example, if you're trying to... Um, develop a drug, um, you can use uh, various types of imaging methods to determine whether the molecule that you've synthesized to ostensibly alter a certain target in the brain, you know, a protein uh, at a specific membrane or an enzyme um, or a, a, a signaling uh, factor, um, you can use it to see if the drug is actually hitting that target. Uh, and that you know, validates that you've got a, a, an active uh, an active compound, um, but it's different than if you're using the imaging technique to look at the effect of the treatment. So um, let's take depression. So yeah. depression has been studied, and 
one of the findings that's emerged is that uh, many patients who have depression defined by just you know, symptoms that they describe or manifest um, have an, uh, an overactivity of an area of the brain in the kind of subgenual uh, cingulate cortex, which is a front, frontal, front of the brain uh, um, in kind of the midsection. And um, that when you use an antidepressant treatment, it uh, reduces that hyperactivity to a more normative level. And you can demonstrate that as uh, kind of a measure of the uh, effectiveness of treatment. And the amazing thing is, is that it can distinguish in some patients who will respond to cognitive behavioral therapy uh, as opposed to some patients who will only respond to, uh, to antidepressant medication. Yeah. Huh, okay, yeah, so so it's not just, hey, we just sat him on the couch, throw him under the machine. It's let's let's really understand what's happening upstairs with this person over time, even if we're not treating them pharmacologically. Um, you know, you can you can still use those imaging tools. You can still sort of de-black boxify uh, their brain uh, over time, even if they're just going through, let's say, you know, like you had mentioned, cognitive behavioral therapy or something like that. That's right. And, and another example is, is with PTSD. So PTSD involves kind of a hyperarousal that chronically persists even in the absence of, of uh, um, threatening stimulation. Uh, and uh, it's associated with a uh, overactivity of an area of the brain called the amygdala, which you know, attaches emotional valence to stimuli. Um, and if you engage in a, a therapy like for desensitization of an individual um, you know, designed to try and you know, desensitize somebody to some type of stimulus, whether it's a phobic stimulus or whether it's a traumatic stimulus, um, you can see the reduction in the activation of the amygdala uh, occurring as a result of this. Uh -huh. So this is a way in which the imaging has informed um, you know, the administration of treatment. But it's, it's not something like, you know, you take a person who's undergoing Freudian therapy and you put them in a magnet and you watch <laughs> for them to, uh, to have insights in what it looks like in the brain. Yeah, no, so that's, that's uh, I understand the PTSD um, example there, because I imagine there is a chance that there are some pharmacological treatments that would be useful there, but, you know, I mean, it, it almost harkens back to, you know, Bandura's research on, on, you know, people who had phobia with snakes or something along those lines, and that you might imagine that, you know, uh, before their, their treatment of, you know, seeing a snake through the glass, touching a snake with a hockey, you know, glove, uh, you know, picking one up, whatever, that, that the, the different brain activities would still be tangible and or um, detectable, but obviously we've gone a good deal past Bandura, and, and uh, this domain of science and of, of neuroscience uh, has has clearly progressed. You had even mentioned optogenetics. Um, I'm up here pretty close to MIT, um, and uh, have gotten to yak it up with some folks that have have worked with Boyden on some various and sundry projects and in previous interviews here on Tech Emergence. Um, where do you foresee the current developments, all the frontiers? You had mentioned the real exponential pace of development in this space in terms of tools with imaging, potentially even pharmacological tools, other tools that help us to manipulate, reconstruct, deconstruct, understand the brain, the mind. Um, which, which of these tools, procedures, etc., do you predict to be most powerful in the treatment of mental disorder or, or just the application uh, to neuroscience in the coming decades ahead, which do you see as more most promising potentially? Well, the first thing I'll, I'll say is that even though we're talking about technology and its impact on this medical discipline, um, this is not to say that uh, all of the practice of psychiatry will sort of default to um, 
looking at uh, the data from the results of tests and then giving somebody a pill or a stimulatory device as treatment, um, the, the interaction with the person as a person will still be an integral part of, course, of, yeah. of this, this discipline. But um, having said that, I think that what we're probably going to see is that um, two developments, uh, you know, by the use of different technologies, including genetics, including imaging, including electrophysiological assessments uh, that are kind of EEG-based, so if you will, EKGs for the brain, yep. um, for using blood-based um, uh, uh, assays of, um, of uh, analytes that are proteins or, or uh, other type of biochemical constituents, that um, the process of diagnosing individuals with mental illness will be refined considerably. What we'll have is one test that can confirm uh, conditions that were previously defined by simply clinical description of symptoms. And um, also will, um, and this is particularly the case for genetics, will we'll peel the onion uh, in the sense that right now if you have depression, it's defined by a set of symptoms which are distressing and last for an extended period of time. Um, but within that rubric, uh, there's probably different pathologic causes. So for example, a, a woman can have postpartum depression due to hormonal changes. Another individual may have depression due to um, you know, their genetic predisposition to it. While another person may experience depression uh, because of the fact that they've been abusing uh, uh, drugs and uh, have withdrawn or are now kind of biochemically uh, in a state of withdrawal. Um, and so uh, the, the, the different causes of these, the treatments for these different types may be, may be different. So, you know, we need ways to be able to carve nature at its joints a little more uh, accurately. Um, and I think the, the, uh, of all the um, disciplines or technologies that will do this, genetics will probably be the most informative. We're already seeing it now in cancer. We used to diagnose cancer based on anatomy and histology. Where's the tumor, the lungs, the kidneys, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the prostate, the ovary? Um, and then by the histology, you know, is it small cell, oat cell, yep. uh, what's your Gleason score? Now we look at the molecular signature and we find that cancers that occur in the ovary may be the same as they occur in the breast based on their molecular signature. Um, so with genetics, uh, what we're finding is, is that mental illnesses can be distinguished in terms of individuals that have certain genetic mutations, uh, mutations that can be inherited, mutations that can occur maybe de novo as a result of uh, being the offspring of aged parents or having been exposed in utero to some type of um, infectious or toxic agent. And this will distinguish individuals that have uh, the disease from, from some more common version of genetic, uh, genetic uh, heritability. Got it. So to the same degree that, you know, uh, we're talking about calibration of... of um of diagnosis and potentially treatment based on genetics, it sounds to me a lot like we'd had some folks on from, from Toot Genomics who are building kind of a software as a service for uh, large pharma companies 
Um, and and they, they speak a good deal on personalized medicine or, or medicine that's really calibrated to the individual, not just sort of bathing uh, the skull or, or, or bathing the body, uh, the systems with a particular chemical cocktail that seems to be right, but really calibrating those, it sounds like uh, performing a similar sort of transition or, or seeing a similar sort of transition in the treatment of mental disorder may in fact, um, you know, be a, a next phase or wave that you're foreseeing. Absolutely. That, that's, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, there will be, I mean, you can do whole genome sequencing or exome sequencing, but there'll be probably chips that have panels of genes that are known to be uh, genes that are you know, potentially associated with risk for a specific mental illness. And um, those will be used routinely to sort of screen patients so that you can have a targeted therapy against the gene or gene product um, somebody used the analogy of saying, you know, the way we treat depression now is that it's like, you know, if you needed to put coolant in your car, and instead of putting it into the radiator, you just dumped it on the engine. Yeah, that's what it's um, like, isn't it? Yes, and, and so, you know, the genetics will be probably the most powerful method by which to you know, really tailor it to the individual and use, you know, this technique of precision personalized medicine. And, and uh, my final question for you here has to do with policy, because you had brought it up before uh, the interview here. I'm certainly interested in your insights. I'm sure it'll be insightful for our readers. Before that, though, just out of my own curiosity, you brought up optogenetics. Do you see upcoming applications to optogenetics in humans? And if so, how? You know, anybody who's Googled optogenetics, just the way it sounds, um, has seen, you know, rats with the blue light streaming into their brain, with uh, you know genetically altered neurons that are responding to that light and inducing particular more targeted responses from certain brain centers or se brain cell types, let's say, um, do you see a meaningful application there in human beings in, in even the coming decades, or or is this just going to be useful for rodents to understand general brain structure? I, I do think it has applications. I mean, first of all, it, it, you know, it already has become uh, uh, sort of a methodology to, you know, enable understanding of brain function using you know, different uh, model systems, rodents or even primates. Yep. Um, but um, I, I do think it has human application for diagnostic as well as therapeutic purposes. I mean, we're already, there's, there's three modalities that are used to treat mental disorders. There's, you know, good old psychotherapy, um, there's now medications, and then there's uh, neuromodulatory or brain stimulation techniques. Now, the original one of these is a little notorious, electroshock treatment. Oh, yeah. Um, it's re it really gets a bad rap, though. I mean, it's, <laughs> even though it seems kind of gruesome, uh, it's a very, very effective treatment, and for some patients, it's a lifesaver. And for people that say, but, you know, it looks barbaric to pass electricity through someone's brain and induce a seizure, I say, well, look, uh, surgery is pretty gruesome, too. You know, if you watch somebody have their belly oh, slit open, it sure uh, is, yeah. The tumor, but nobody argues with the benefit of it. So um, uh, again, this is a manifestation of this double standard, I think, that applies to mental illness and psychiatry. But um, I think what you know, part of what is happening now beyond electroconvulsive therapy is different types of stimulatory techniques that are uh, much more scientifically. Yeah. Uh, 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 Developed and, Le less and, and rubber, and less rubber mallet style. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we have we have something called um, repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. So instead of using electrical curves, using magnetic uh, stimulation, but that only permeates the, you know, can't get through the skull and too deep into the brain. Yep. It can only you know, penetrate about, uh, you know, maybe uh, 
you know, two or three centimeters. Um, but uh, then we have deep brain stimulation yes. where an electrode is surgically implanted into a region of the brain to uh, recalibrate a circuit. So um, optogenetics, I think, can be useful in this regard. So instead of having a pacemaker, we'll be able to um, utilize you know, this kind of uh, uh, luminous stimulus. Um, so I, I think all these techniques are going to be, uh, but they're going to pose some ethical problems. Oh, for sure. Whether, you, whether you're creating, you know, you're taking the variation of human diversity uh, and you're trying to basically engineer, biologically engineer some type of, you know, master race or optimally. Yeah, uh, no, I, I completely think so. I mean, if, if we can, if we can kick up memory a notch, if we can feel the way that we want to feel via our own volition, rather than sort of counting on the world and our normal genetic disposition towards sadness or happiness, um, are those not tremendously liberating, but are they also not tremendously uh, yeesh, potentially dangerous in terms of side effects and, and societal impact and, and all other various and sundry factors? We could go on for there for days, but I'm certainly interested in those uh, potential impacts. My, my last question, just because I realize our, our, uh, our time here is short, and, and I think that this will be great and important, is your thoughts on the policy and economic scenario around these treatments. You know, ideally, we'll be moving forward towards a world that treats mental illness in a, uh, a better fashion or, or uh, a world where we, we understand neuroscience and to a greater degree, and maybe that will involve enhancing, you know, humans, who, who, who knows? But um, for you, there are some barriers in place uh, in the policy domain. I'm not as much schooled here uh, specifically, so go into a little bit what you see as the lay of the land in our scenario with respect to policy and neuro and psychiatry. Well, I've been in the field of uh, medical research and psychiatry for 30 years, and and most of it doing research and taking care of patients. But um, in recent years, I've increasingly been drawn into the public arena and dealing with um, legislation and policy. And uh, I'm concerned that um, the limiting factors in terms of progress and improving the quality of life and well-being of our population and society uh, is not um, technology, it's not science and it's not uh, the healthcare. It's the, uh, the way our governmental systems devise policies and uh, the way they allocate the sources in our society. And just as an example, um, you know, in the United States, the, uh, apart from you know, the defense against you know, war or terrorism, the biggest threat to the uh, country is the economy. And the biggest challenge to the economy right now is healthcare spending. Uh, and the biggest way to try it, well, first of all, our government does not have a coherent policy to fund healthcare. We have this kind of uh, mosaic of private, public, now with the Affordable Care Act, this uh, um, uh, clearinghouse to get policies. And in addition, beyond just how we finance it, the question is, is how do you improve care and reduce the burden of illness on society and the cost of delivering care? And, and obviously the best way to do that is through research. But right now, most of the research that's done in biomedical arena is done funded by the NIH. The U.S. has a $4 trillion budget, federal budget. The NIH gets collectively $32 billion, that's like less than 0.05%, yep. whereas the European Union, 
And many Asian countries, China, Singapore, Korea, Japan, are spending 4 to 12 percent of their federal budget on biomedical R&D. Um, our government has really just lost it. And as a result, uh, we're uh, losing our capacity to maintain a leadership role and also not progressing nearly as fast as we could. Huh, okay, so so the, the, the research, you know, despite the fact that, you know, we've, we've even here in the States, you know, we've, we've made some meaningful contributions. I mean, we were just talking about optogenetics, and obviously there's a little bit of a tie there to MIT in addition to the, the folks over in the UK. Um, but on the whole, you foresee that we will have a tough time uh, keeping up caring for our population if we're spending so much less than the rest of the nations are on developing and rolling out effective treatments um, because we're just not allocating funds there. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I was recently in Russia. I was invited there by the health minister, and uh, I toured some of their leading research and health facilities. And um, they were incredibly uh, primitive. I mean, it, they, it was, they were nowhere near as sophisticated and modern, as cutting edge as anything in the United States and many other places in the world. Um, so what they're doing is they're providing kind of a watered-down quality of care to their population. And if you look at their statistics in terms of longevity and rates of illness and so forth, uh, it bears that out. And then when you talk about research, they're producing no innovation. They're adopting innovation that is generated in other parts of the world uh, and using it as they're able to. So we're putting ourselves in that position where uh, if we have new technological developments, um, we're not incorporating those into the healthcare delivery process and because we're not financing healthcare to be delivered in a way that it could be most effectively. And then by undercutting uh, uh, undercutting biomedical research, we're, n we're not you know, producing the you know, the level of innovation and new technological development that uh, we could be doing utilizing our biomedical research infrastructure. I mean, a welcome development in this regard was the President Obama's uh, Human Brain Initiative, yep. which if you, if you look at the description of it, it's, it's a brain initiative basically to develop new tools, new tools in neurotechnology that can like really move forward uh, in a more powerful way at being able to f measure the function of the brain by not just single cells or single neural circuits, but thousands or tens of thousands of cells and multiple circuits simultaneously. And that's what we need. Got it. So um, there's, some, there's some promise there. Your fear, uh, and, and seemingly a realistic one, is Man, we don't we don't want to end up in a Russia scenario where we're we're allocating so little of of what our national budgets are in this domain of of mental health um, or even of health in general. If, if I'm if I'm catching your drift, um, that that we're just picking up the slack that you know the rest of the the developed countries are are utilizing. So hopefully there will be some meaningful changes there. And it sounds like you're involved in to some degree getting involved in the legislature to to aim to bring some awareness to that to that issue. Yeah, but I, I think Keith Tassan getting involved is, is a little bit of an overstatement. <laughs> uh, I, I've, I've, got a, I've got a glimpse of what's going on inside the Beltway, and it ain't too pretty. Um, but yeah. uh, short, of, short of going into politics and, or getting, getting uh, more enlightened people to go into politics, I'm not sure what the answer is because uh, I, I, think, I think, you know, science and uh, 
technology and healthcare are, are, are doing very well, um, but when it comes to uh, the governmental process, uh, I think we're, 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 we're in trouble. Ouch. Uh, well, hopefully this will improve in time, and hopefully some awareness will bring some light to the matter. I'm sure there's a lot of different perspectives, but, Doctor, I sincerely appreciate uh, you sharing yours. In parting, if people want to learn more, uh, I, I know your your recent book, again, was Shrink, the Untold Story of Psychiatry. Um, if people want to learn more about your individual research, or maybe they're just interested in learning more about um, neuroscience in general, are there any resources that you might point them to as we wrap up our podcast? Well, I mean, you can certainly look at uh, the websites of um, you know, many of the national professional organizations like the Society for Neuroscience, the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology, um, the American Psychiatric Association. There's many books that are written for the um, like uh, 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 lay public or the sophisticated yep. lay public. Uh, Michael Gazaniga has just come out with another book. He's a very smart cognitive neuroscientist. Uh, one of my friends and colleagues, Eric Kandel, has written a number of books, including um, In Search of Memory. Uh, hmm. And so uh, these are, if you want to read about mental illness per se, uh, E. Fuller Torrey has written a series of books which are fascinating about schizophrenia, manic depressive illness, uh, health policy, and Kay Jameson and um, Andrew Solomon have written uh, just uh, um, uh, really uh, uh, captivating first-person accounts of their experience with depression and bipolar disorder. Nice. So those are those might be some reference points for the folks who are tuned in now who might want to learn a little bit more, some arrows to point to to, to delve a little bit farther into this topic. Uh, Dr. Lieberman, thanks so much for being able to join us here today on Tech Emergence. I appreciate your insights. Thanks, Dan. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, then be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>